Have you ever felt like that the deck has been stacked against you? Uh, probably you have. Uh, and if you have, then you understand the feelings of frustration because of that. You understand the feelings of hopelessness that can be a part of that. And all that comes from the reality of being powerless in one of the most desperate and I think even dangerous places in the human experience. And some of you know that experience and you know it well. You know it well maybe because of the color of your skin. You may know it well because of your political persuasion. Or you may know it well because of not being included in the group, whichever group that is whether it's depending upon what you make, what side of the tracks you grew on, uh, your education, uh, your uh, uh, way that you, your worldview. But, but probably all of us at one time or another have experienced, some more uh, probably than others of us have, uh, of what it's like to feel like the deck has been stacked against you. And when that happens, when it, when it really happens, you no doubt suffer harm, you suffer insult, you suffer indignation because the powers that be are stacked against you. Now, in the parable of the weeds, Jesus, as we told you last week, he interprets this privately. Unlike the parable of the sower in the soil, Jesus interprets that parable, but that interpretation is given to the crowd. This interpretation is a private interpretation that he gives to the twelve after the twelve have initiated by asking, explain to us the parable of the weeds. As we told you, the first four parables in this chapter are spoken by Jesus to the crowds by the sea. The last four parables of this chapter is spoken to the, to the, to the twelve in the house. And these parables are parables regarding the kingdom regarding the secret of the kingdom, that, that Christ uh, in His ministry inaugurated the kingdom, but the consummation of the kingdom doesn't come until sometime later. And in between that time, we have a time where the kingdom is made visible through the body of Christ. And, and that we are, we are to serve as ambassadors to the kingdoms of this age to help to show them and to demonstrate them what life in the kingdom is going to be like. Uh, the conflict, as we looked at last time, is we looked at, we told you that this parable is divided into uh, uh, three scenes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but we talked about the conflict. This parable is a parable of conflict. And, and, and we found that the conflict here is personal. Uh, it's personal. It, it, in the parable itself, it's between the owner of the field and his enemy. And, and we found that, the, that it's personal between Jesus Christ and his enemy, Satan. And it also it involves us because we're children of the kingdom if, you, if you're a child of God. And so the conflict is personal. We also talked about that the conflict is current. And again, we, we looked at the wording that's used there and we found that, that basically the, 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 this conflict, the stage of this conflict is the world. And, and, and its participants include you and I, citizens of the kingdom of God, and those who are kingdom citizens of the world and hold to its philosophies. That there's a conflict. There, there is a, a, a conflict of worldviews that is taking place. A conflict of those who, who hold to the, the things of Scripture, the tenets of Scripture, and to those who don't. And this conflict is current. 
And this conflict is continuing. And we also said that the conflict is destructive. The goal, the goal of the enemy is the ruination of the body of Christ corporately and individually. And it's done through deceit. It's done through deceit. And so in examining, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, in examining this parable, we found that it's divided into three scenes. You have the sowing, the sowing scene and its interpretation. He talks about the, the sower in verses 24 and 25, and then Jesus interprets it to the twelve. He speaks, he speaks the parable to the crowd in verses 24 and 25. He interprets the parable to the disciples, in, uh, the, growth, uh, the, the sowing scene in 36 through 39. The growth scene is found in verses 26 through 30, uh, the first part of verse 30. And then the harvest scene is found in the latter part of verse 30. And then Jesus interprets it privately. He speaks it to the crowd, but he interprets it privately to the twelve there in verses 39 through 43. Now this morning, we're going to continue with this parable and we're going to examine the growth scene. Last week, we looked at the sowing scene and its interpretation. This morning, we're going to look at the growing scene and the reality of this cosmic conflict. What is happening? What is taking place? What is the reality of this conflict? And how are you and I to respond to this given the fact that the deck is stacked against us? How, how is, what do we do as believers to respond to a culture that is stacked against us? To respond to a worldview that is stacked against us? How are we to respond? What is our responsibility? Now, the second scene of this parable, as we said, is found in verses 26 through 30. And so again, we look at the growth scene. When, and and uh, we'll begin reading in verse 26 here in just a moment. In this scene... Two crops are discovered. Two crops are discovered, and it is followed by two rounds of Q&A between the owner and his servant. The first round, the servants ask two questions, and the owner answers it. The second round, the servants just ask one question, and the owner answers it. So look at verse 26. Verse 26, we read this. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also. We talked to you last week about these weeds. It's it's a darnel plant. And and darnel plants are, you can't distinguish them from wheat. If you watch them grow together, they will look like the same exact plant. The only time they become uh, distinguishable is when the grain appears. And that's what's going on here. Uh, in this verse, the darnel is unrecognizable until the grain appears. When the grain, and, and, that, and that's the idea of the verse. The verse isn't saying here, so that when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. It's not talking to us about the timing of the growth. That the wheat grows up, and then as the wheat grows up, then all of a sudden the wheat, weeds appear. Or as the wheat is growing up, and then once the wheat bears grain, then all of a sudden the weeds appear. That, that's, not, that's not the idea. The idea here is that of not being able to distinguish between the two. 
So the wheat is growing. It comes up. You've got the blade coming up. It's pushed. It's, uh, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of Green Acres. You know, y'all remember Oliver Douglas and his, his speech, you know, and the fife and drums would start to play and everything. As the, as the, and then Lisa would say as the little shoots uh, push their way up to the sky. But, but as, as they're coming up there, see, y'all just have no idea what goes on through this, this brain as I'm speaking. But, but, but as, 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 they are, as, as, as the grain is growing, you, you can't tell. As it pushes. As it makes its way through the soil, you can't tell the difference. As, it's, as, it's, as, as, the, the, as the, the shoots become, come, uh, uh, come up stalks, you, you can't tell the difference. As, it, as the heads of the grain are getting ready to, to open up, you can't tell the difference. But once the grain appears, once the fruit appears, then you're able to tell the difference. The grain of the darnel is, is darker than the, the grain of the wheat. And that's how you tell the difference. And so here you have a situation where the darnel is unrecognized until the grain appears, and what identifies the wheat from the weeds is the fruit. Up until the time the fruit appears, it's indistinguishable. But what allows the servants to understand which is wheat and which is darnel is when the fruit appears. So that's what's happened. It's been months since those servants went out and sowed the grain. It's been months since they did the work. And now comes the time of the harvest. Now comes the time of of reaping the grain. And as those servants get up that morning to be able to look at and begin to ascertain uh, the task before them, they notice, the first time they notice, we've got weeds in here. We've got Darnell. And we talked to you last week about how Darnell is poisonous and, and uh, we won't go into all of that and, and, and how, it, how, it's, how its root system goes deeper and, and intertwines with the wheat. And so they see that and they, they immediately know that there's a problem. And in verse 27... As Jesus is telling this parable, he gives to us the first round of questions. And the servants of the master of the house came. So they're out in the field. They've gotten up. They're getting out in the field, getting ready to to see how the grain is doing, how the wheat is doing. And they see this, this bumper crop that appears to be out there. And then all of a sudden, as they examine the, the heads of the grain, they recognize, we've got Darnell in here. We've got Darnell. We've got weeds in here. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Look at verse 27. They came into the house and they said... And this first question is written in such a way that that they expect a positive answer. In, In the Greek text, when you ask a question, you can ask it using a certain word that expects a positive answer. You can use another word that expects a negative answer. This first question they ask in such a way that they're expecting a positive answer. The question is, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? You did. I mean, these servants were the ones who sowed it. They know that the seed that they had was was good seed. And they they know their master and they know the character of their master. And they know their master's desire. And and, and so what they expected to be sowing was was good seed. And and the first question of the two indicates the surprise of the servants. They they can't imagine. Wait a second. We sowed good seed. 
pastor, didn't, didn't we sow good seed? Of course, yes, we sowed, we sowed good seed. So where did this Darnell, where did these weeds come from? And the first round of questions inquires about the fact of the problem. We've got weeds and also the source of the problem. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? We've got a problem. We've got a problem. And then, how then does it have weeds? What happened? How did this problem occur? Well, in the first part of verse 28, the owner gives to us the answer. And he indicates a couple things. He indicates that he knows where the seeds came from. Look at verse 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. He indicates he knows where the seeds came from. It came from an an enemy. And by saying that, it also there's an indirect implication here that he also understands how. Earlier Jesus said, he he told us how, that, that the enemy came and by evening under the stealth of darkness and he came and he sowed the Darnell seed. He sowed he sowed the weeds. And by the fact that this owner knows, he knows who did it, and by implication, he knows how he did it. But he also knows what to do. And it's going to be indicated in his answer to the third question that we're going to, that we're going to look at in just a second, the third of the servant's questions. So the, 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 the servants come and they say, did, we, we sowed good seed in here, didn't we? How, 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 how come these weeds... Where did these weeds come from? And the master in answering the question, he knows where they came from. He implies how they did it. And in a moment, he's going to explain what to do. Now notice, while the servants are, explain, or are displaying surprise, while the servants are displaying shock, while the servants are confused, while the servants are not certain what to do, the owner is not flummoxed, nor is he frustrated. He's in complete control of the situation. He doesn't start wringing his hands. He doesn't start calling a group together to kind of figure out what to do. He knows what's happened. He knows who's done it. He knows how he accomplished it. And as we'll see in a moment, he knows exactly what to do. He knows exactly what to do. So the master answers. And his answer is followed by the servant's third and final question. Look at verse 28. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to go and gather them? In other words, who has the responsibility of solving the problem? Who has the responsibility of solving this problem? And the master begins his answer in verse 29. And in verse 29 he says, But he said, No. And that word no in the Greek text is in the emphatic position. No. You you don't do anything. You do not do anything. This is not your responsibility to remove the weeds. And he goes on and he says, in verse 29, he says, No, 
lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And that's the end of the growth scene. That's the end of the growth scene. And so here, the master makes, makes it clear, it is not the responsibility of the, serp, uh, of the servants to remove the weeds from the field. That is the responsibility of the field's owner. And, and, and so he, he knows what to do. He'll, he, he explains it later on. He says uh, there in verse 30, he says that the harvest, I'm going to tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the weed into my barn. He knows what to do. He also knows when to do it. He says, not now. It's not your responsibility to do it, and, not, and now is not the time to do it. We'll wait until it's harvest time. We'll wait until it's harvest time. It's not the responsibility of the servants to remove the, the weeds. That's the responsibility of the field's owner, and the servants are to allow both to grow together until the time of the harvest. Separation of the wheat from the weeds is to be delayed. It's to be delayed. Now, Jesus doesn't interpret this for us. He interprets the sowing. He identifies what he's talking about in the sowing scene. And he identifies for us the harvest scene. Uh, We've already seen the interpretation of the sowing scene. Next week we'll see the interpretation of the harvest scene. So how do we understand what's going on here? Well, I submit to you that this scene, uh, as we said, uh, that, that, that by knowing the interpretation of the other two scenes allows us to indirectly interpret this middle scene. This, is the, this scene is the only scene that's not interpreted by Jesus. Yet if I understand the players in the sowing scene and I understand the timing and the, the, the event and the actions of the harvest scene, I can put together the understanding of this scene right here. So, let's kind of review. What's the interpretation of the sowing scene? Well, we know that Jesus is the owner. Jesus is the owner of the field. He's the one who continues to sow good seed into the field. We, we saw that last week as we looked at the verses that deal uh, as he, as he, at the beginning of the parable, when he tells the parable, and then when he begins to interpret the parable there in verse 38. That Jesus is the owner. He is the one who is continuing to sow the, the good seed into the field. We found that the field is the world. Jesus interpreted that for us. He told us that the field is the world. And the field, the world, is the stage of the conflict. This is where the conflict is seen. The conflict in the parable is seen in the field. The, con- the field represents the world. So the conflict that is seen between Jesus and His enemy is going to be witnessed, it's going to be displayed in the world. We also found that the good seed are those who live in this life as as citizens of God's kingdom. Those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, those who are putting their confidence in being made acceptable to God by the the work of Jesus Christ, through His person and through His work, that they, they are putting their confidence in Him, they become, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a citizen of the kingdom. And the good seed Jesus interpreted for us, we don't have to guess, Jesus interpreted that those who live in this world, who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have a relationship through God, through Christ, 
who have been made acceptable by God through the finished work and the person of Jesus Christ, they are the good seed that have been planted in this world. They are the citizens of the kingdom. We also found from last week is that the enemy is Satan. The enemy of Jesus is Satan. And this conflict is personal. It's personal. And that the enemy of Jesus is Satan. The enemy equals Satan. Satan is the one who came and st- under, 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 under the cover of darkness, who, st- who has stealthily come and through hopefully to deceive, to, to sow the weeds into the, into the world. And the weeds we found are the philosophies and people of this world. The philosophies and people, it's the things of this age, the things that compromise, that, that, I'm sorry, that, 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 that make up this age, the things that the, the, the people of this age who don't know Christ as their Savior, and the philosophies of this age, the worldviews of this age that is anti-God, anti-Scripture. That these, are the, these are the things, and, and they are to be used by Satan for the goal of poisoning and ruining the body of Christ by means of deception. Jesus explained it to us. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but Jesus also interprets the harvest scene in verses 39 through 43. Let's just look at it real quick and just to uh, uh, touch base with this text there. Uh, if you look at about the middle of verse 39, Jesus says, The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear." And so here's basically what we find from, from, the, from the harvest scene, the interpretation. And we're not, again, we're not going to spend much time here, but the harvest is the end of this age. So that gives us the chronology. The, the end of this age, whenever that is, the end of this age is the time of the harvest. And the event, uh, the, the actions, that, that at the end of this age, Jesus is going to send His angels and He's going to separate the citizens of God's kingdom from the citizens of the kingdoms of this age. And those aligned with Satan and his kingdom, or kingdoms, will be judged and punished. They'll be judged and punished. They'll be separated, and they will be cast into the fiery furnace, and they will experience anguish, regret, pain there in the fiery furnace, which is figurative of of hell punishment. Those aligned with Christ in His kingdom are going to experience, are going to shine forth. Again, he's using uh, uh, figures of speech here. He talks about the fact that they are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The idea here is is that of, 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 of a radiant and quality of life beyond anything imagined. So that's that's what's going to happen at the harvest time at the end of the age. So knowing the sowing scene and being able to interpret that and knowing the harvest scene and be able to interpret that, then what about the growth scene? What is happening during this duration of time between the king's inauguration and the king's consummation? So what's going on in the growth scene? Well, in this age, this is God's plan. In this age, God's plan is to allow righteous and 
allow the righteous and the unrighteous to coexist. At this time in God's kingdom program, at this time in God's plan for the ages, the righteous and the unrighteous are to coexist. Let them both grow together. Let them both grow together. At this time, the righteous and unrighteous are to coexist. In this age, God's plan is to allow His world to be the focus of conflict between good and evil. This world, at this age, at this moment, is not a place of peace. It's not intended to be a place of peace. Nor will it ever be, in this age, a place of peace. It's not going to happen. Why? Because at this time, in this moment, it is God's plan that this world be the stage of conflict between the kingdom citizens and those who are citizens and followers of Satan. Worldviews that follow Satan. This world will always, 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 always be a place of conflict until the time of the harvest. Always. So we shouldn't be surprised that this world has weeds in it. We shouldn't be shocked as the servants were. Where'd the weeds come from? This world will always be, in my lifetime and in your lifetime, this world will always be a place where there is conflict between those who hold to the Scriptures, those who follow Christ, those who adhere to uh, biblical Orthodox Christianity, and those who don't. It will always be a place of conflict. In this age, God's plan is that the growth and the maturity of His children will occur in the midst of adversity. In this age, the growth and maturity of His children will occur in the midst of adversity. As we are growing, as we are, are, are maturing, we do so alongside the weeds. And the purpose and intent of, of philosophies and worldviews and those who abhor the name of God is to ruin the body of Christ corporately and individually. But yet in the midst of that adversity, it is God's plan that you and I grow through it. You and I grow through it. Let me, let me, let me park and say this, and I might say it again, so that way you'll know I'm, I'm not getting too senile and repeating myself. Okay. What are we learning about God and ourselves and how we need to grow in the midst of this COVID If we miss out on that, then it's been a waste. God wants to teach me something about Himself through this. And God wants to teach me something about me and my relationship to Him through this. And if I miss it, I miss out on the most important thing that could happen to me through this. If I miss it. God's intention is is not for our lives to be a life of ease on this world, in this world. God's intention is that, my, that I am going to grow 
and mature in, through, and by adversity. Now, I don't like adversity. I'd rather not have adversity. But I don't want to waste it. It's like, I think it was John Piper that, that wrote, when he was diagnosed with cancer, wrote the book, Don't, don't Waste Your Cancer. Don't waste your cancer. Don't waste the opportunity. When adversity comes into our lives, it is an opportunity given to us by God to grow, to mature. And we can't waste it. Is it hard? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. Does it break our heart? Yes. Does it cause change in our life, unwanted change in our life? Yes. Would I rather have it or not have it? I'll I'll, I'll choose the not have. But at the same time, it's through those adversities that we learn where we need to grow in our relationship with God, where we are weak in our relationship with God, where God has changed us, where we are growing, where we rejoice to see what God is doing. It's through those things that allow us to experience the grace and mercy of God. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, is that just words on a page? Or is that the reality of my life? In this age, it's God's plan that the growth and maturity of His children will occur in the midst of adversity. In this age, God's plan, God's plan is to be long-suffering in the judgment of the unrighteous. Now, why in the stinking world would God do that? There is coming a time when that's not going to be true. During the millennial kingdom, when there's any kind of unrighteousness that raises its its head, immediately God deals with it. Immediately God deals with it. And really, that's kind of like I would like to see in this time. I wish God would immediately deal with the unrighteousness that He sees until I think about my own unrighteousness. Then I want a little bit of grace, okay? Give me a little time here, God, to figure this thing out. But God, at this moment, because He says He's going to let both grow together, and Jesus said in the parable, the owner says, the servant said, do you want us to go and gather up the weeds? And He says, nope, leave them alone. At harvest time, I'll take care of it. So at this point in time, God's plan is to be long-suffering in the judgment of the unrighteous. In this age, God's plan is to reveal those who are His, not by outward appearances, but by means of the fruit of their inner character. In this age. You can't tell if a person's a believer whether or not they go to church. You can't tell if a person's a believer whether or not they read the Bible. You can't tell if a person's a believer whether or not they walked an aisle, whether or not they've been baptized, whether or not they made a profession of faith. Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. Is their life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit? Is their life changing and growing? Are they being conformed into the image of Christ? 
I don't know anybody's heart. I can't discern. I have no idea whether anybody in this auditorium this morning is a believer or not. I have no idea. But I can take some good guesses, some real good guesses, based upon the fruit of their life. What is being seen? Can I be wrong? I certainly can. I think of Demas. I think of Lot. And if I was sitting there looking at them, I would say there's no way in the world Lot's a follower of God. But yet the New Testament tells me he vexed his righteous soul every day. Demas has forsaken me, having loved, the, having loved this present world. Don't, don't interpret that meaning that, that he's not a believer. There's nothing that would... He, just, he, loved, he, he left Paul, he left the ministry because of his love for the world. Because of his love for the world. But that's how God reveals. That's how God reveals. They look, they look indistinguishable until the fruit appears. Until the fruit appears. So... How shall we live? And here comes all the ease that, that Jubal had to spit out this morning in the, in the uh, call to worship. So, with this truth and this understanding of the growth scene, then how are we to live? Well, first we're to evangelize rather than seeking to purge or purify the world. Now, I'm not saying we can't stand up for, for justice. I'm not saying that we can't stand up for what is right, that we can't voice our opinions about the, the things that occur in this world that, that just are not right. But that, as believers, that cannot be our primary objective. Because nothing gets changed from the outside in. Things get changed from the inside out. They get changed from the... How did, how did you become a believer? Inside out. Inside out. How how, how do you get conformed to the image of Christ? Inside out. Inside out. And while certainly we we need to take the the responsibilities, uh, the privileges that we have, and, and it may look different from all of us, our primary concern is not to purge or to purify the world. That's what the Pharisees did or tried to do. Our primary concern is to let people know about Christ. Because He and He alone is the only effective change agent. And change occurs when Christ is preeminent. When Christ is preeminent, change occurs when He's preeminent. And while I may not like what's going on around me, and I may feel like the deck is stacked against me, that cannot keep me from evangelizing. I may be powerless to change the culture. I may be powerless to change my situation. But that I am not powerless when it comes to telling other people about Jesus Christ. I saw that when the, the, the communist country that I was in a couple years ago. You talk about rules and regulations. The place where I went, there'd be, I mean, every place that you went, when you registered at the hotel, there was a monitor to take your picture. Face recognition. When you came through the airport and made your way into the country, you stopped and a picture of you was taken for face recognition. And every place you'd go to make a purchase, face recognition. Face recognition. So that way, that government would know where you were, 
at any time in any part of the day. But you know what? I heard testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of people that were coming to Christ. Didn't stop it. It didn't stop it. And we will get sidetracked of what our primary responsibility is if our goal is to purge and purify the world. It's not our job. Jesus said, Don't do, do you want us to go get rid of the weeds? Nope. Nope. Not your job. Not your responsibility. But it is my job and it is my responsibility to evangelize to tell others about Christ. So how shall we live? Well, we engage in this conflict of kingdoms as good ambassadors. We engage in this conflict of kingdoms as good ambassadors. This whole, the context of this whole chapter is about being, uh, about being faithful kingdom citizens and fruitful kingdom citizens. That the Word of God changes and grows me so that others can see a difference. So that others can see the character of Christ in me, which gives me a much stronger platform to share with them the gospel. Let me tell you what Christ did in my life. Yes, I still struggle. Yes, I still have these issues. Yes, I, 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 but let me tell you what God did for me and how God's changed me. And, and, and how, uh, how He loved me and how, how He loved you. And also as faithful kingdom citizens, as we're going to get to, when we get to the end of this, that we also, uh, when Jesus talks about the end, of, uh, the end of this parable here, and he talks to them uh, in, in, uh, about the new and the old treasures, he says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, this is the last of the eight parables. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And we'll explain that. In the sense that, that our responsibility is to be, to be faithful kingdom citizens, to, to bring forth the message of the kingdom and to share with them the, 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 the message, new and old, to share that with them. Because we are ambassadors to the kingdoms of this, of this age. It's, it's the church that's the shining light on the hill. It's the church, not any nation. It's the church that is to be the shining light on the hill to show the world that there is a different kingdom that is not of this world and that anyone can become a citizen of if they'll put their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only are we to evangelize, engage, but we are to embrace adversity as a means of conformity. If I am truly serious about the life of Christ being formed in me, then it means that I don't want, I don't pray every morning, now God bring some adversity in my life today because I really need to be conformed. But if I really, truly, if I really, truly want to be conformed into the image of Christ, then when adversity comes, I don't have to like it, but I do need to embrace it. Because it's that very thing that is going to form in me something that is much more valuable to me in my life 
than not walking through it. It's what happened to Paul when Paul said, I had this thorn in my flesh, and Paul recognized it. Boy, I could be much more effective. I, I, could, I, could, I, could, I could do more things. I, I, could, I could be more, more useful in the kingdom. God, just take this thorn away from me. And God says, my grace is sufficient. And sometime later, we don't know how long, but sometime later, Paul is, man... Boy, if, if God would, God, if you just wouldn't just take this thorn away from me, I could be could be much more effective in the kingdom. I, I could be a much better servant. And and I, God, would you do it? And a second time, God says, "My grace is sufficient for you." And the third time, Paul does it. And the third time, Paul does it. God says, "My grace is sufficient for you." And then finally, it got through that thick head of his. Just like my thick head, Paul says, I finally realized that it's through that thorn that the power of Christ is at work in me so that I don't boast, I don't brag. It's not about me. It's about God. And I learned to walk in dependence upon Him. And what I gained, what I gained is far more valuable than what I've lost. Than what I've lost. Now, I don't want adversity. I don't. But when it does come, I've got one of two choices to make. I can either grumble and complain and become bitter, or I can embrace it because in this age, it's God's means of conformity for for those who know Him. I embrace it. I embrace it. In this age, because of God's plan to be long-suffering in the judgment of the righteous, what that should look in my life is that my life should exhibit compassion and long-suffering to my enemies. Golly, this this stuff stinks, doesn't it? I mean, number three was bad enough. I mean, number one, okay, let's evangelize. Okay, great. Engage in conflict? Yeah, okay, hey, I'm going to be a good ambassador. Embrace adversity? You, you nuts? Be long show compassion and long suffering to those who are my enemies? What are you smoking? <laughs> Darnell? Yeah. Yeah, Darnell. What are you what is what is wrong with you? They're out to destroy me. They're out to make my life more difficult. They're out to... They, they, they ravage, they, they smear everything that I hold dear. They want to separate me from the body of Christ. Show compassion. Show long-suffering. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm going to join, join Peter's band and grab my sword and start swinging. And hopefully, I just won't get the ear. This is hard. This is hard. Of the four, this is the hardest one for me. But yet, God is long-suffering in the judgment of the unrighteous. Let both go together. Now, they eventually get judged. 
They do have to give an account for what they do. But the only one who's qualified to judge them in that instance to, to dispense eternal justice is God. So how shall we live? Evangelize, engage, embrace, exhibit. And then finally, we are to endure. We are to endure in faithful service to Christ by means of His grace and power until the fruit of the Spirit is revealed in and through you. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, self-control. Until those things are seen, and as those things are seen in me, and as those things grow, continue to grow, others see Christ. Love and joy, peace and long-suffering, gentleness and goodness and meekness and faith. Those things are seen. And they don't make sense to this world. And the character of Christ is demonstrated by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God. And I'm able to live in the world and the culture that's stacked against me. As we close, I'm going to tell you something really profound. Something really profound. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the world is stacked against you. That was profound, wasn't it? None of, I bet you none of you knew that, did you? That's a truth that's come down from heaven today that you thought, my goodness, you, you, you ought to know. Listen, let, let me tell you what my pastor preached on today. The world is stacked against me. Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? I didn't know that. In our country... In our our, our culture today, genuine biblical Christianity is ridiculed, it's abhorred, and it's deemed by those who believe themselves to be tolerable, intolerable. It is. Did you know you're an intolerable person? Did you know that? You're intolerable. You're abhorrent. You're, You're as dumb as a box of rocks. You're ridiculed, you're abhorred, and you're deemed intolerable. And we think we've got it hard, but in most places on this planet, Christians are abused and powerless. They can't, they can't, not only can they not, they can't even find a job because they're a Christian. They're kicked out of their houses because they're a believer. Their own families turn against them and turn them in. I know it's difficult here, but in most of the places on this planet, our brothers and sisters in Christ are literally, physically abused and have no power. They've got no courts to turn to, family to turn to, civil liberties to turn to, They've got nothing. Yet, yet, please don't misunderstand me. You and I are not victims. I am not a victim. I don't care how much this world and culture may be stacked against me. I am not a victim. Because my labor and your labor 
in and for the Lord is not in vain. It's not. And because my present and your present is secure, nothing, nothing, nothing can happen to me that does not first come through the sovereign hands of God. When COVID started, I told you one thing about me. I've either got a 0% chance of getting it or a 100% chance of getting it. One of the two. Nothing in between. Now, I did all the things that I needed to do to try to keep from getting it. But I'd much rather be with my wife. And when she coughed, when we were, when I told you last time that we were in bed, and I know exactly when I got it. She had it on Thursday, came symptoms down on Thursday. Uh, Friday, or it might have been that night, that Thursday night, or maybe on Friday night, we were in the bed. We were facing each other. She was asleep, and she coughed. And I thought, hmm, I got it. Because <laughs> I'm not going to go to bed with a mask on. I'm just not. I like kissing my wife at night, you know? And it's not very fun kissing through a mask. And so, so I, I got it. I got it. That's okay. That was okay with me. There's nothing. There's nothing. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying throw caution to the wind. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't be smart. I'm not saying recognize your situation and be careful. I'm not saying that. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying, well, there's a 100% chance or a 0% chance of me getting hit by a car today, so let me go stand out right here in the middle of the street and let's see what happens. Okay? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being foolish. But what I am saying is this. My God is sovereign over my life, and He holds my breath in His hands. He knows when my last heartbeat is going to occur, and He's going to make it stop when He wants it to stop. And I'm going to breathe my last breath when He wants me to breathe it. And nothing, 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 change that my present your present is secure my my government my culture my world cannot do anything to me that doesn't come first through the sovereign hands of God not only is my present secure but my future is certain my future is certain because one day the owner is going to come and he is going to separate. And the weeds are going to get bundled and cast into judgment. And the wheat is going to be gathered into the barn and experience a life of radiance and quality that is completely unimaginable. Unimaginable. And the truth of the matter is, if this country ever gets to the place where it's like other countries and Christianity is... Uh, uh, can become a death sentence. Well, if they kill me, guess where I'm going to be? Not a bad place. Not a bad alternative. And I'm not being flippant about it. I want to live. I want to live as long as I can live. I do. I want to see. I want to see my grandkids grow up and get married. I want to become a great grandparent. And and if and if I don't have to, you know, if I don't get too decrepit, I wouldn't mind becoming a great-great-grandparent, you know? To be quite honest, I'd like to become a great-great-great-grandparent. You know, the thing about death, I know I'm off on the way, you know the thing about death that bothers me is I can't be around, <laughs> you know? I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I like to be, I want to see my grandkids get married and have kids. And I, I want to see them grow up and I want to be involved in their lives. 
and I'd like to see them grow up and, and be involved, have kids. And get, I, man, I, I'm, I, I'm going to miss out on that. I can't, I can't get right into the middle of that stuff. But I digress. <laughs> we live in a time of the growth season. So, evangelize. Don't worry about purging and purifying this world. You can't do it. You will, you will drive yourself nuts trying to do it. I'm not saying not to take advantage of the, of the privileges that we have and the responsibilities that we have. I'm not saying that it can't make a difference, but that cannot be our primary objective. Evangelize. Tell people about Christ. Change occurs from the inside out. Engage in this conflict. Be, d- d- seek to be a good ambassador of the kingdom of this age. Embrace adversity as a means of conformity. Don't. It's hard. It's difficult. We'll cry. We'll weep. We'll feel loss. But as we make our way through all those emotions and as we, as we unload those emotions upon God and as we begin to think and to allow the Word of God to minister to our heart and others to minister to our heart, we can embrace that very adversity because of what it's going to produce in our life. Exhibit compassion and long-suffering to the enemies of Christ. How are they going to believe that God loves them even though they're sinners when we can't? When we won't love them even though they're a sinner? And we need to endure in faithful service to Christ so that the work, the fruit of the Spirit, continue to persevere, continue to move forward. And when you fail, ask God for forgiveness, dust yourself off, and Get up and go. A righteous man falleth seven times, but riseth again. You keep getting up. You keep getting up. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. When you do, you seek forgiveness. You repent. You confess. You get up. And you continue to move forward. You continue to move forward. And if we do this, we stand before our God, we'll hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter thou into the joy Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word today. Help us to be receptive. Help us to be transparent and honest before you. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. I don't know your heart today, but God does. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, call out to Him today. You're not going to be able to do anything to make yourself acceptable to Him, no matter how hard you try, 
no matter how sincere you might be, the only means of salvation is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You cannot offer to God, anything that you might offer to God is tainted. It's tainted because of sin. So therefore we have to have a righteousness that is not our own, that is given to us by the perfect life and vicarious death of Jesus Christ. So if you've never put your faith and trust in Him, I want to encourage you to do that right now. And if you do, come speak to us after the services. For those of us who are believers, the Lord used this text to be a help to us. We live, the, the world doesn't get any better. It's, it's not going to get better. And I don't like saying that. I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of person. I'm not a half empty guy. I'm a half full guy. But it's not. It's simply not. It's changed dramatically in the six plus decades that I've lived. And I'm guessing it's going to continue that downward spiral. But that doesn't mean that I cannot be what God intends me to be. God has given us a unique opportunity. We live in a unique time to be able to be good kingdom ambassadors. Let's go to the Lord in a time of silence. And then after that, we'll close out our services today.